Joining me here for Test Tube Thursdays on Moore in the Morning, our science expert, Dan Riskin. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. I, I find compelling this story. Oldest known dog bone. Hence, our best friends were with us earlier than we thought. I thought, well, then who buried the bone then? <laughs> yeah. Well, so when I first read this, I was like, is this like the bone that a dog was chewing on or is this the bone from the dog? And this is the latter. It's it's a humerus from a canid. Uh, and this is a bone actually that was found in 1985, uh, but they had the date wrong and they had the identity wrong. And so it's been reanalyzed using radiocarbon dating. So now they know more precisely how old it is. And it's it's about 3,000 years older than they had thought. And based on the genetics, they now know that it's a dog, not a wolf, uh, and also based on the shape of it. And so what this does is it pushes back the oldest dog to 17,000 years ago. And this fits into a big debate about where where did that happen? When did dogs become dogs? You know, going from wolves to becoming dogs. And estimates on that go back as far as 40,000 years to 17,000 years. So this definitely put gives us a dog at the oldest time that we have uh, so far, but it doesn't really answer that question. It just gives us context. But there's a more interesting question about how that domestication happened. I mean, when is neat, but how did it happen is much cooler. Did dogs get Sorry, did wolves start living with people and then get domesticated by people? Or is it possible that wolves started to do something called self-domestication where they started really just living on the periphery of human settlements and changing to adapt to that. And they became a little bit domesticated before people started interacting with them or taking them into their homes. How did that happen? And, and we're hoping to get more information from bones like this that'll help answer that question. The other piece of it is that a lot of people think that dogs became dogs independently in different parts of the world. Maybe wolves were domesticated independently in different places. And so the more bones we find, the closer we get to an answer to all these questions. Well, the dogs coming around first makes sense to me in the way that coyotes and foxes are all over the city. Totally. And raccoons. Yeah, uh, or <laughs> yeah that's rats. all we I need mean, is domesticated raccoons. Listen, go 40,000 years of the future, maybe they'll be the best pets ever. Right now, they're a little <laughs> bit little bit snarly. And so that's the thing is like we forget a dog is so easy to, you know, you just look at it and it sort of bows down and, and behaves. But you got to remember, wolves are not like <laughs> gentle creatures. So no. it's kind of it's kind of substantial that we did domesticate or that they domesticated themselves. That change is very cool. And there are all kinds of debates about why it was that dogs were so easily domesticated, whereas other creatures were not. And there's an analogous debate. If you look at horses versus zebras, horses have been domesticated, no problem. They're gentle. We can do all kinds of things with them. Zebras, people have tried, but there's just something about the way zebras are built that they will not domesticate. They're very violent, very angry, and it just doesn't work. People have tried a lot of times. They'll bite your finger off. So, um, you know, sometimes there's just something in the genetics that allows a creature to be domesticated. Maybe raccoons can never be domesticated because something in the way they're wired, or maybe they're going to be very easy to domesticate over thousands of years. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. It was a long, long time ago that this happened, Dan, but I went to a place that fixes small motors, get the, something done with the lawnmower or whatever. It was out on the edge of town, Dauphin, Manitoba. And I went in there, took the lawnmower in, and the, the guy had a dog, and the dog was uh, was tied up in the corner. And the dog turned and looked at me, and I just, I looked it in the eye, and I thought, I said to the guy, what's wrong with your dog? Like, it just seemed like it wanted to kill me. And he said, it's not a dog, it's a wolf. Oh, yeah, well, that'll do it.
Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. There's a big difference. There's a big difference for sure. And, and the, the, one of the most basic things comes down to when they look at you because a domesticated dog will look you in the eye and try to get, you know, and try to build a bond with you and try to understand your emotions. And a wolf, you can bring it into your house and you can raise it from a puppy, but it only makes eye contact in sort of antagonistic situations and not, not in that friendly way. And so, yeah. uh, it's much harder to get them trained for that reason alone. And looking back on it, he shouldn't have had a wolf in there. I, and it's not, I'm not talking about the danger to the people. It's not good for the wolf. Like they're just not, right. they're not programmed to just hang around the shop like a yeah, dog. But will. he's not the only one. The dog, yeah. uh, wolves end up getting uh, taken into captivity a lot. And uh, sometimes, I mean, culturally, it could be a weird status symbol. There's a great podcast called Crime Town, which is about the mafia in Rhode Island. And because I lived in Rhode Island, I've listened to it top to bottom. And a lot of these mob people, you know, it was a status thing to have wolves in their backyard and so you could hear them howling at night and it would scare their opponents or whatever you want to call it when the, the mobs were in competition it's it's a weird cultural thing people with a weak future time perspective are more likely to engage in bedtime procrastination i don't understand that headline at all yeah this is a psychology paper that it says something that you kind of could have figured out on your own but they back it up with a, a sample size of about 3,600 people and basically they think it's a bunch of surveys for people and they say hey how much do you think about your future and how much do you think about where you want to be in 20 years and people answer those questions and these are young people answering the questions like between the ages of 11 and 23 so okay how much do you care about your future and think about it and then how much do you procrastinate on your phone before you go to bed and they find a link between thinking about your future self and having more self-control and a, a better ability to put that thing away and try to get some sleep, presumably because you're just not sort of stuck in the moment and not thinking about the long term. And, and so you procrastinate less. Um, I, I, don't, I find the study sort of a little bit uh, self-evident a little bit. And I don't know that I, I don't know what to take from it because it doesn't really offer a way out. If you're a person that's procrastinating with your phone, maybe you could change the way you think about your future of 20 years from now, but it doesn't really get at that. So I'm not really sure that there's anything from this study that you can do to make your life better if you're one of those people like me who has trouble putting the phone away when it's time to go to bed. You know, skipping back to our first topic, because I got a really interesting text message here, and I'll paraphrase, you wonder if maybe the corgis lay around and dream, you know, once we were wolves. Uh, yeah, but they've got it worked out. I think the corgis are winning because how much work do they have to do? And they get to live in the queen's house. Well, yeah. sorry, the king's house. I mean, well, or maybe they off the dogs. I don't know what they did. I, no, they gave them to, no, didn't they give them to the, the, the brother, the the bad brother? Anyway, the Andrew, corgis. Andrew, yeah, I think here's, Andrew has the corgis. Yeah, yeah, here's part of your punishment. You have to take the corgis. You have to take care of your mom's dogs. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. Um, what are we learning from bees living in isolation? This was a study that was designed to figure out how to keep bees in captivity well. So there are all these studies that, that look at how to keep take care of bees and how bees respond to different chemicals in the environment and all this stuff. And for those kinds of studies, you need to keep the bees in the lab. And this was a study to see how can we keep bees alive longer in the lab? Let's, what if we give them water in addition to just flowers? And oh, water's good for them. Oh, what about some sugar water? And so they were trying all these things and they were measuring lifespan. And then they went to compare it to the other data from earlier studies. And they said, wait a second, our data are totally different from data from the 70s. So if you go back to the 1970s, the average honeybee in captivity lived for 34 days. And if you look now, the average 
average bee in captivity lives like half that long, like 17 days. And so what, what's going on? I mean, this is in captivity. So don't tell me it's climate change. Don't tell me that it's parasites. Don't tell me that it's disease. No, these are captive bees where we're controlling everything. And if you look at studies, you can see this gradual decline in longevity, and that's linked to lower honey production. Now, these are honeybees. These aren't wild bees. Um, honeybees, a lot of people think of them as a, a wild part of North America, but they're domesticated animals that were brought over from Europe for apiculture. So, so it's kind of like a chicken, you know, that they're brought in and they're, they're farm animals in a, in a, in a sense. Um, but still, it does point to something weird going on that has economic importance for the bees themselves and may have something to do with what's happening with other insects, other bees, we don't know. And so uh, it's kind of an alarming thing. And, and really, they have no idea what is causing this drop in lifespan. But we finally found something that we're not blaming on global warming. That's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not. This one is not climate change, so everybody could take a, a sigh of relief from that. But they think it might even be the, baked into the genetics of the bees. Maybe we've accidentally been selecting for something and and changing their DNA over time. Something about the way that we keep bees that has made their lifespan shorter. So this is a question they're going to be trying to answer. All right, uh, Dan Riskin, our science expert. Always good to have you. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Take care. Thanks a lot.